Welcome to Beyond Protocols. My name is McKay Rippey. And before it slips your mind, I want you to head on over to joinbeyondprotocols.org. That's joinbeyondprotocols with an S.org. There you can sign up for our Zoom introduction. During that intro, we're going to be introducing you to the four labs to create bio individual treatment plans. And then if you want to stick around, we'll show you how you can get help from us implementing that into your practice using the Beyond Protocols process. This is part three of our deep dive into mycotoxin detox pathways. And specifically, we're going to cover sulfonation. And this is all going to be done by our genomics expert, Emily Givler. So welcome to our Beyond Protocols Thursday. We are going to start out continuing um, with our conversation on mold, mycotoxins, and specifically looking at some of the, the phase two liver detox pathways that are um, associated with specific mycotoxins. Because as we've been discussing, every single one of these phase two pathways is going to be involved depending on which mycotoxins are present. So if we're thinking about precision, personalized nutrition and medicine, we really have to be thinking about matching the what we're doing <laughs> to the what we're trying to eliminate. And for a long time, we just really did not know nearly enough to be able to effectively manage something as complex as mycotoxins. So we have historically used um, things like glutathione as our primary intervention for mycotoxins. And as we discussed over the past two weeks, it certainly has its role, especially with ochratoxin and aflatoxin. But if you are dealing with other mycotoxins and all you're throwing at the body in front of you is glutathione, you are not going to effectively detox this person. So this week, we're going to talk about sulfation, which some people are going to refer to as sulfonation. You're going to find it listed both ways in the text. I'm going to go back and forth using both of them. Technically, it should be sulfonation, but we'll see sulfation popping up so much. So whatever you want to call it, it's the sulfur conjugation. So I am, and so we'll talk about this for a little bit, and then we will get into a case study uh, from Rika, who could not be here, but hopefully she'll be able to view the recording. And she and I did have a chance to chat about this individual as well. So let me turn off my camera and do a screen share here. And we will look at um, a little bit about the sulfation pathway. Maybe, maybe I'll be able to do this. All right, let me get into my little slideshow for you. Hopefully, oh, let's go back to the beginning though, rather than the end. So <clears throat> as always, we wanna take a quick peek at our whole process. And remember that this is just one piece of a bigger puzzle. So here we're still thinking about how we properly interpret the results and create a roadmap. So if we don't 
understand how to interpret tests like the mycotoxin test, which is an imperfect testing tool, then we can't possibly create an appropriate roadmap for the people in front of us. So sulfonation, aka sulfation. So phase two liver pathway that detoxes a lot of different things. Benzene, acetaminophen, some acetaminophen is glucuronidated as well. Um, anywhere from 50 to 70% of it takes that pathway. The rest is uh, sulfated unless you overwhelm the body with too much Tylenol. And then it really changes um, the liver pathways and pushes it more towards actually an acetylation component. Um, certain mycotoxins, which we're going to discuss in more detail, endogenous phenols, catecholamines, androgens, estrogens, thyroid hormones, bile acids. So sulfation is breaking down a lot of endogenous compounds as well. So keep that in mind. It's not just that toxic burden from outside the body that's weighing on um, our livers. So there are a lot of different SULT enzymes that catalyze the, the sulfonation process. And every single one of them uses PAPS as a cofactor. So if you have someone who has genetic vulnerabilities on the PAPS SNPs, which you currently have to go into the gene report in the functional genomic nutrition software to take a look at, we will do that before we close today. Um, but variants there can be uh, very detrimental in um, allowing the body to break down and, and clear these various compounds. In general, the conjugates produced from this pathway are less toxic. Um, most of them are non-toxic, not all of them, though. Uh, they are very water-soluble. They're readily excreted in urine. But there are a lot of toxins that will block uh, this pathway, PCBs, PAHs, bisphenol A, potentially other bisphenols as well, but the research has only been done on BPA, triclosan, other pollutants. So <clears throat> a lot of things that we are exposed to on a daily basis. There <clears throat> is a study that was done on six-year-olds uh, assessing BPA levels, and 96% of six-year-olds had elevated levels of bisphenol A from exposure to soft plastics or can linings or thermal printer receipts. And BPA is pretty ubiquitous. And the new bisphenols that they're using in place of it are generally more toxic, not less toxic. So just that reminder that we want to move away from plastics wherever possible. So when we think about the targets and the functions of sulfate conjugation, it's the inactivation of hormones and catecholamines, both the activation and inactivation of certain xenobiotics, the removal of endogenous products like bile salts, and the modulation of various protein structures and functions. So I did mention <clears throat> that all of these sulfotransferases, which are coded in the software as the SULTs, use PAPs as their co-substrate and their sulfate dome. So, Sulfation at its heart and at its biochemical basics is taking your toxin or your substrate with your sulfural group. Um, and so that's why we would, we would designate it as sulfonation rather than sulfation. So we do also want to think about where these reactions are happening. 
and with sulfation, some of it is going to be in the cytosol and some of it is going to be in the Golgi apparatus. So I kind of broke down for you where we would see each of these reactions. And we do want to keep in mind that all of these reactions are going to require ATP to get started as well. So again, thinking about upstream things and downstream things, if you dealing with someone with insufficient ATP production, that can be a rate-limiting factor for sulfation or sulfonation as well. So most of these actions are happening in the cytosol. Um, <clears throat> and when we think about some of the SNPs that we talked about, I picked these out because these we spoke about in the deep dive uh, that we did. So just kind of breaking down where we would see uh, those reactions occurring. So what does it look like? This is the uh, catalyzation of DHEA into DHEA3-sulfate. Hey, Emily, can you, yeah. can you mm -hmm. pause for a second? Your slides aren't changing. You may all have been taking notes, and here I had it down for you. <laughs> Are you seeing the slide on sulfonation and sulfation? Yep. Okay. I, I think we got it going now. Okay. So we have our sulfonation, our sulfation, our compounds endogenous and exogenous that are cleared via this pathway. Little review on what PATHS is, and then where it would really help to see, we have our sulfation targets in the cytosol and our sulfation targets in the Golgi apparatus. These are great slides. Too bad we missed them. <laughs> <laughs> so again, these Hey, that's the wonderful thing about having a platform. <laughs> the, all of these slides will be here for you. Um, and if you're anything like me, writing, taking these notes, writing them down helps to lock it in. So again, apologies. So these are the SNPs that we had looked at in the deep dive, um, just kind of broken down into where we would see these reactions uh, occurring and some of the specifics of what the individual sulfotransferases are, are working on. So for instance, the SULT2A1 is our DHEA to DHEAS. Um, so here we need a functional PAPS enzyme, and we need a functional SULT2A1 in order for this to happen. We also need a sulfur group, and so we do want to consider a sulfate molecule. So we do want to consider um, the relationship of oxalates in this sulfation pathway as well. As we've previously discussed, oxalates can cause a massive loss of sulfate in the body. So when we look at some of the solute carriers like the SLC26A1 that transports oxalate in um, that rise in oxalate causes a loss of sulfate. And so the sulfate is excreted in urine, it's lost to the body, and that in and of itself becomes a rate-limiting factor for sulfonation. So in individuals with high oxalates, we will see a greater likelihood of impaired sulfation and sulfonation. Um, additionally, there are some pretty significant uh, health concerns that are associated with impaired sulfonation. So here we're looking at 
the SULT1A1, RS1042028. So when you look in um, Bob Miller's uh, functional genomics software, you'll see that this is currently the only ClingVar validated um, SULT1A1. And the associations here are cancer associations, particularly in women with hormone replacement therapy. So whether it's a heterozygous genotype or a homozygous genotype. Um, so as practitioners, this is something that we can, can look to to try to minimize risk moving forward. So when we talk about the mycotoxins specifically, sulfation, it, we could be tempted to say sulfation is not the most important pathway. But if you have deoxynivalenol or T2, uh, like trichothecene toxins, then this is an incredibly significant pathway. So the most important pathway to support is the one that is going to clear the toxins or the endogenous compounds or whatever it is that you need to get out of the body in front of you. So if you have someone with ochratoxin and aflatoxin, sulfation is not the most important pathway to, uh, to support and upregulate. But particularly with the trichothecenes, um, this is a really critical pathway. So how do we upregulate it? All animal proteins are robust sulfur donors. So increasing animal proteins and legumes in the diet, whichever is going to be appropriate or both if possible, is a good nutritional kind of baseline way to help support this pathway. Caffeine actually helps upregulate the sulfation pathway. So for people who are doing coffee enemas, it is one additional benefit that you get. But this is something that we can upregulate with oral administration of caffeine as well. Uh, ginger is a fantastic mechanism for upregulating uh, sulfonation. Um, mag sulfate, so this would be Epsom salt. This is not something that you want to do orally. <laughs> Magnesium sulfite is a unpleasant laxative when taken orally. Our sulfur-containing vegetables, like the cruciferous vegetables in particular, but things like onions and garlic, uh, also great ways to support um, this pathway. Eggs, which are robust in sulfur, are a great way to support this pathway. And retinoic acid is really critical here and often overlooked. In terms of binding, um, we have no information on effective binders for uh, deoxynivalenol, but for the T2, the things that seem to be most beneficial would be zeolites, activated charcoal, and glucomannan. There is inconclusive evidence that bentonite clay may be beneficial. If they're tolerating it, if you're using a combination binder like GI detox, um, I think that for most people, you're not going to do harm by including the clay, but I probably would not reach for it as a standalone as it would likely be, there's too great of a chance that it, it would be too weak of a binder for it. So I'm going to get out of this portion. 
and we'll take a look at some of the genetics. There are a number of places that we can look in the sulfation pathway. We could look at things like the oxalate potential. Uh, we could look at things like under the glutathione pathway, SNPs like CTH and CBS, which would influence the transsulfuration pathway and the formation of sulfate. But we're going to jump right into this phase two sulfation box. So again, the importance of sulfate for this is pretty critical. You know, without sulfate, you're not going to sulfonate. Um, so we do want to look at our SUOX. So SUOX is sulfite to sulfate conversion. And sulfate is needed for this reaction. Sulfite is quite toxic to the body and will trigger uh, NADPH oxidase. Um, or that knocks up regulation. So um, if there are polymorphisms on SUOX, you do want to make sure that you're addressing this. Molybdenum is a wonderful, easy, and safe way to help upregulate this enzyme. And you can check the expression utilizing uh, sulfite and sulfate test strips. So with the sulfite and sulfate test strips, you would want to be seeing sulfite levels at 0 or 10, sulfate levels 400 or 800. If you're seeing sulfate levels uh, that are excessive, um, you need to evaluate whether it is because they are using a lot of sulfate donors like chondroitin sulfate, glucosamine sulfate, MSM, Epsom salts, um, high amounts of cruciferous vegetables in the diet, or whether it is in fact sulfate wasting because of oxalates. So a good um, intake in terms of diet and supplementation will help you answer that question. Sulfate levels 200 or below are insufficient. And so you would, in those cases, you would need to up those sulfate donors that we just discussed. So looking at the sulfotransferases, the SULT1A1, um, this software does not give a lot of disease-specific information. So that is part of why I shared that uh, endometrial uh, cancer association with the SULT1A1. When we think about functional testing for the 1A1, we would think about measuring things like estrone levels. So polymorphisms here to confirm that expression Think about running hormone tests like a Dutch test. With the SULT1A2, um, I'm sorry, with the SULT2A1, not 1A2, I'm a little dyslexic today, the SULT2A1 is going to be that DHEA sulfation. So here, think about um, measuring DHEAS, measuring cortisol, measuring testosterone. Think about doing maybe a, a whole Dutch complete um, to see what is happening with uh, those hormones. And then the SULT2B1 um, is going to be your estradiol. So really critical for the hormone clearance here. The SULT6B1, it's worth noting, it's going to be more thyroid related. Um, so this is the, the conjugation 
of thyroxine. So think about measuring TSH, total T4, free T4, T3, total T3. Look at those thyroid markers if you see polymorphisms on the SULT6B1. Um, SULT4A1, we mentioned the relationship between sulfation and neurotransmitters. This is going to be one of your key sulfotransferases. So all of those are cytosolics. Um, and then we have these others that are in the Golgi. These are, are going to be involved with things like the sulfation of uh, chondroitin uh, and glucosamine. So we spoke with about these fairly extensively in our deep dive when we discussed the relationship between oxalate and sulfate. So you do want to make sure that you are cross-referencing um, those CHSTs as well. Now, this section of the pyramid should also contain the PAPS SNPs, and it used to. I'm not entirely sure what happened, but they are not currently there. So in order to take a look at what's going on with PAPS, which is really critical, we need to go into the reports and look at the gene analysis. This can take a little while to load, but we'll do a manual search for, for the PAPS. And they are conveniently coded as such. So in general, good presentation here handful of very common heterozygous variants, no homozygous variants. And even if we scroll up, oh, only one page. So in some versions of the genetic analysis, you'll see about 56 different pap SNPs. Uh, the version that this individual had done only has 15, but these look really good. So this is not someone who I would worry significantly about um, sulfonation, sulfation, whether it be of uh, hormones or of uh, mycotoxins. However, it is worth noting that with any pathway, any toxin, you, there's a, a supply and demand component where you can just exceed your body's capacity to detox. If you are living in a home with tons of fusarium species being exposed to massive levels of these mycotoxins, you could just, you know, totally deplete your available enzymes. And then you would need to bring in that supplemental support, even in the absence of genetic variants. When we think about things like mycotoxin clearance, people who have genetic vulnerabilities along these pathways are going to need more help than the average person. That doesn't mean that the average person doesn't need any help if they are being exposed to these hormones, so or to these mycotoxins. So most of you have been working with hormone tests for a while, with mycotoxin tests for a while, and um, we know that we have that we see this relationship between you know, impaired DHEA levels and certain mycotoxins. And some of it is the alterations in that sulfation of DHEA because we've just used up all those available sulfate molecules. So we see these kind of ripple effects. And I see there's a ton of questions. So I want to kind of go through those really quickly and then we'll jump over to our 
um, our case study. Um, acetylation is a different pathway. Okay, so in the case of acetaminophen specifically, high really high doses, especially long-term, shift the body's clearance of it. There's some interesting papers on that. Um, well, and I see where everyone noticed that. My slides weren't changing. Um, so Terry is seeing great results with supporting those with EDS with chondroitin sulfate. I am so glad to hear that. I see the same thing with that increased structural stability. And so we see it with EDS. Not everyone recognizes that they are hypermobile because there are a lot of different types of EDS. And some people with it feel incredibly stiff because they're dealing with so much muscle splinting because the body is desperately trying to hold particularly the spinal column steady. When there's instability in the connective tissue along the spine, it becomes really easy for the intervertebral discs to become compressed, which will in turn compress the nerve where it exits the spinal column. And this is really bad news for every organ that's enervated by it. So the body, in a desperate attempt to save the function of those organs, will spasm and use the muscles to create that structural stability. So you'll see this present in people who get massages and feel great in the moment because they're really tight and then feel exponentially worse afterwards because they've lost that supportive mechanism. Um, sometimes people who feel worse in certain ways after Epsom salt baths. Sometimes it's that component as well. Sometimes it's oxalate dumping, but sometimes it's just the relaxation of those, especially the erector muscles uh, in the back that are trying desperately to hold that person in place. So if we can re if we can create that structural stability with things like the chondroitin sulfate, we can see those muscles relaxing because we don't need that splinting in a physiological way. Um, and McKay posted a, uh, a paper for anyone who didn't see it uh, on the forum on T2 toxins and ALS. So we will all have to go back and read that. Um, and um, Terry put a couple good notes up there as well about the T2 being associated with things like thrombocytopenia. Um, and low platelets. So um, Naomi had a question about garlic being discouraged in lupus while DHEA is recommended. I don't have any thoughts on that off the top of my head, but if anyone does, um, please uh, let me know. Dr. Seneff is completely correct that lack of sulfation is not compatible with life. So humans are not the only things that sulfate. We see it in the plant kingdom, in the animal kingdom, and in certain phyla in the plant kingdom in particular. Like I can think of the exact studies that Dr. Seneff is pointing to where it's like, these polymorphisms are not compatible with life not in humans, we have a lot of different mechanisms for it. You know, when things are life-sustaining, our body has backup mechanisms. Um, those backup mechanisms are sometimes less robust in simpler organisms. But 
sulfation is so incredibly critical to lots of things other than just detoxing as we, we typically think about it. Um, so we never want to eliminate all sulfur foods. And realistically, when people talk about eliminating sulfur foods, they eliminate some, but nobody eliminates all of them because animal proteins are really robust in sulfur. All cruciferous vegetables, onions, garlic, really robust in sulfur. Um, legumes are contributing factors to sulfation. So most of our amino acids have some sulfur backbone component things. So um, we don't pull it out completely. Sometimes we eat a more sulfur heavy diet than others, but it's pretty tough to go completely sulfur free. So I think it's one of those things that's better viewed as a more or less sulfur, like a high sulfur diet, low sulfur diet, but there, we're not going to get to a no sulfur diet. Um, so in terms of support for PAPS variants, I will admit that these are some of the more challenging NIPs that, that we see, and just giving sulfur does not often work with these individuals. Um, and so there, usually it's not that there is no functionality, it just may be less robust. So what I see, and this is anecdotal in my practice, I have one gentleman who has homozygous polymorphisms on almost every pap SNP that we look at. He is very, very much an outlier here. Interestingly, he is a Korean individual, and so I don't know whether he is an outlier because there's not a huge Korean population in the database. I'm going to have to go back and look at it with some of the different parameters that we can now set to see if um, you know, it is more common with his ancestry than it might be in the generally Caucasian database that we're looking at um, in the functional genomic nutrition software. But this individual has very poor sulfur tolerance. Um, we've done a lot of gut testing. Initially, we, we thought that was why he would have these strong reactions every time we tried to up any sulfur-containing foods or compounds. And um, then when the, the PAPS variants came into the picture, we kind of shed this new light on it. So he does struggle with detoxification. He's dealt with some very uh, dysregulated hormone levels as well. So we find that a little like slow drip of sulfur in works well for him. He does well with Epsom salt baths a couple times a week, but we can't push it too aggressively. <coughs> Excuse me. Or um, he gets uh, asthmatic type reactions. So a lot of it is about balancing how much is going in, how much is coming out. Um, and as Naomi mentioned in, in the chat, she's got someone who has good DHEA levels, but homozygous PAPS1 and PAPS2. So look at DHEA and DHEAS. If they both look good, you know, that is one component. Let's think about some of the other things that need to be sulfated, cholesterol, sulfate. 
Um, how are the estrogens, the androgens, the bile salts, are there vulnerabilities in any of those areas? And if not, then, you know, that's our confirmation. This is why we want to look at those functional labs to see, is this expressing? The genetics is predictive, it's not a guarantee. So, um, you know, not every polymorphism is something that we have to do something about. We always have to turn back to those functional labs and see if it's actively creating an issue or not. Um, this uh, head tremors in CHTS, the CHSTs. Um, I don't know that I could necessarily point to that, but I also am not going to fully rule it out, Tina. I'm going to ponder that one and and get back with me on that question. Um, so Naomi is also seeing snips in Ashkenazi Jewish community with low hormone levels, um, lemongrass, essential oil for lowering hydrogen sulfide. Um, so for the the big X factor with anything sulfur-related is what's happening in the gut and the potential for this hydrogen sulfide SIBO, which is still somewhat up in the air. But lemongrass essential oil is something that for most people can't hurt, might help. So, you know, if you have someone who's having strong reactions to those sulfur foods, if you're seeing, um, you know, major challenges with hormones along that pathway, with bile acids, um, that could be a, a fair intervention. Um, with essential oils, we have to be really careful. Very few of them have been studied for internal usage. Um, so, we get a lot of the benefits of essential oils just from inhalation. Um, you know, a lot of those compounds are able to cross the blood-brain barrier in that way. Think about diffusing as well, as long as moisture in the environment is not a concern. Um, and then I would always dilute it appropriately if you are going to use it topically. Um, I do think it's a good idea if we get into essential oils to make sure that we are working with good quality oils and preferably with a knowledgeable clinical aromatherapist who's trained in those. There are a lot of dirty oils. There are a lot of oils that have massively different potencies and chemical signatures. Um, the aromatherapist that I work with happens to be local to me, but she consults with people nationally. Her name is Deb Stolzfus. And I am going to type her website into the chat box. It's in shanti.com. Um, she is an independent clinical aromatherapist. She batch tests all of her oils independently. She doesn't do any multi-level marketing stuff. And her products are some of the best, the most potent, and the cleanest that I have found. So I highly, highly <clears throat> recommend her. Oh, I sent it privately to McKay. Let me send it to everyone. My apologies. I'm a Luddite today. So it's in Shanti.com. Um, so, again, if you're going to use the essential oils, 
be careful. They're really potent. We use herbs a lot in the work that we do, and we know the power that they have. So when you take those same herbs and distill them down to their most potent constituents and then just give those, you can get a lot of bang for your buck. But if you do the wrong thing, you can go really wrong as well. So please use caution there.